Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming John Apicella to the show. John is a professional television, film, and stage actor with a resume spanning decades. Film highlights include Disney's recent The Call of the Wild, as well as Point Break, and some television favorites are Seinfeld, Twin Peaks, The West Wing, Freaks and Geeks, The X-Files, and Friends. John has an enormous theater resume as well and has worked on wonderful stages all over Los Angeles and the country. This is, in fact, how we met, as I am a member of the Antius Theater Company, and he is a founding member and former co-artistic director. We've done staged readings and home readings together, and we've even played father and son on stage. John possesses a wealth of historical knowledge, especially in the context of theater, and as a history major myself, I always love picking his brain about it. He's charming, he has a lovely sense of humor, and I'm thrilled to get to know the life he lived before I met him. Welcome to the show, John. Hello. <laughs> How you doing, man? Hey, I barely recognize that guy that you described, but thank you. Thank you. <laughs> he sounds pretty cool. I like this John Apicella guy. I'm so lucky to have a, a fan like you. <laughs> John, I mean it when I say I really adore getting to have access to you when you're in a moment of reflecting on theater in the context of its historical moment, which is so important to understanding what theater is or what a play is. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that now. What is it like for you as you sit here in this heightened moment full of such buzzing energy and distress. Hmm. And theater is in such a strange state. Right. Well, it, it, theater, uh, as we know it, doesn't exist at the moment, <clears throat> at least not in the United States. Um, they're starting to peek their heads out in uh, Europe and uh, Great Britain. And in L.A., certainly, for the, all practical purposes, there is no theater, because theater is uh, the only art form that has to take place in person. Mm. You need to be in the room for theater to really occur. You can see a show or watch a play being performed on television and see the actors on the stage, but it's just not the same effect. There's something really deep and emotional that occurs when uh, people share the, the space. Uh, I don't know if you read that article, uh, and I've been trying to find out, you know, just, to, to Snopes it and see if it's real. And I haven't found anything to, to say that it isn't real. The idea that when an audience uh, is in a theater together, that after a certain amount of time, their heartbeats begin to synchronize. Are you serious? Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and I, 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 I keep looking. It just sounds too good to be true. So I, I always feel I have to caveat yeah. the, uh, the statement. But uh, I can believe that it is true because... There is a, a, a sort of group trance state that can occur when great theater happens. You know, uh, there are times where you just feel a glow in the room. It's a mystery how it happens, but it's, uh, it's a very deep thing. It always strikes me as fascinating that the uh, theater of Dionysus in Athens, where all of the classical Greek plays and comedies that we have premiered, is on the south slope of the Acropolis, right next to the precinct of Aesculapius, which uh, was a place of healing. 
Mm. And that they're allied in that way, that there is a, a thing that happens with theater that, you know, it's not just, you know, Aristotle's rap on uh, uh, catharsis. It's also uh, a road to peace, to tranquility, to fulfillment, to it's something that people seem to need in a way, that it, that it fulfills a really deep human need. And the, the best of theater, the, the truth of theater is only manifest in person. Mm. When people are breathing the same air and sharing that space together, and uh, that's the most the saddest thing about the uh, present state uh, of theater is that it, it it doesn't exist really. Zoom plays are fun, you know, and they've got their place. And who knows? Maybe it'll become a thing once our isolation ends and we're able to enter back into the world fully. How scared are you that? we might not get to have the theater that we used to have. Everything passes, doesn't it? I'm afraid that a lot of the small groups in uh, Los Angeles are not going to survive this. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be a very different landscape uh, in 2021 when theaters start to open again. But uh, actors are tough and enduring, and they survive. They will go on, and the theater will go on. Uh, no matter how badly things seem to be going, in the long run, the theater always manages to survive because I don't think people can live without it. Well, that's a lovely place to end that. But before we can get to the entire show, I have to ask you what you had for breakfast this morning. So what'd you have for breakfast? Well, I made myself a, uh, a latte with soy milk and a one-egg omelet, which I attempted to make in the French style. <laughs> and one slice of buttered wheat bread toasted that we made ourselves. And that's one of the nice things about this pandemic is that many of us are baking. People are baking bread. There's going to be a whole generation that knows how to bake bread. Millions of kids uh, over the last six months have been introduced to how bread is made and how to make it. One egg, huh? Just one. Just one. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to restrict my diet because even if we do a little daily exercise on the uh, exercycle bike, bicycle, <laughs> the exercise bike, uh, it's just, you know, we spend a lot of the time not doing anything. And you can make a very nice omelet with one egg. Did you succeed in the French style? You said attempted to make in the French style. How close to the French style were you? Were you pleased with uh, your I, with the outcome? It's, it's the way Jacques Papin makes it. Uh, uh, you just uh, put a little butter in a hot pan, let it sizzle, and then you take your one egg and you whip it up really good so that it's really well mixed together. And when the butter stops sizzling, you put your egg in there and you move it around very quickly. And as soon as it kind of sets on the bottom, you roll it up and uh, put it on your plate. And it's still a little uncooked in the middle, although it tends to kind of finish up. And uh, the mark of a good French omelet is that it's just egg-colored. There's no scorching on it, no browning. Mm. And I'm not quite there yet. I still, I still, oh, I appreciate you know, your honesty. up a bit. But I go ahead and eat it anyway. <laughs> John, let's do it. Let's do the big one. How and right. when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? That's an interesting question. How was I introduced to God? I don't believe we were ever properly introduced. <laughs> uh, my recollection, because I, I know you asked this question, so I was thinking about it. 
And I couldn't remember a time when I did not, when I was not introduced to God, when I was not familiar with God, when I was not uh, aware of of a greater presence. Uh, and it goes way back to pre-kindergarten, and you know, as, as early as I can. I remember that I was a um, I was a very studious kid, and my parents, you know, devout Catholics. My father, especially, I think were bound and determined for me to be a priest. Mm-hmm. And so I was raised to do that, sent to the schools to do that. And when I finally broke with the church when I was in my late teens, that was a great disappointment to my, uh, to my parents. But, you know, I, I realized that I did not have a, a vocation, that it wasn't something I wanted to do. And as a matter of fact, I, I, uh, I couldn't, sustain a relationship with the Catholic faith any longer because of, uh, because of what I perceived as uh, enormous areas of hypocrisy and, um, and meanness and uh, cruelty. So th- those things sort of turned me off, I guess, for life to organize uh, religion. Because I guess there's probably no more organized religion than Catholicism, mm. but uh, even the less organized ones. I've been a loner as far as that goes, and I don't have a personal conception of God as a as a being. God is an enormous mystery. What we call God is an enormous mystery, and it's that part of life you can't really express in words, which is why I think uh, the Judaic tradition is so wise and. Uh, not speaking God's name, you know. I've I've always taken that not as being a fear of offending Him, as just the realization that what we refer to as God is something that is beyond language and beyond thought and beyond reason. It's something that is experienced and felt and intuited uh, and not uh, not proven. John, that's beautiful, but. I want to find how that realization came to be from the boy who was supposed to be a priest. Mm-hmm. So first, do you have any siblings or did you? I, I both do and did. I had two brothers. My younger brother, uh, Jerry, passed away about uh, four years ago. And my uh, brother, Keith, is well. And he and uh, my sister-in-law, Nancy, are living in Phoenix and uh, thriving. Well, I'm sorry to hear about that, but also glad to hear that you have one of your brothers still. Were you close together as brothers when you were young? When we were young, uh, yeah, I'd say we were. We were about each about two years apart, close enough that we could relate to each other, but far enough away that uh, we were in different places. I still love my brother Keith very much, and we don't see each other as much as I'd like, but uh, he's, he's a wonderful guy. So where did you grow up, John? Uh, I was born in Chicago and grew up in what was an Italian neighborhood then, around 24th and uh, Halstead on the south side, uh, which is now the uh, interchange of two great freeways. So the little neighborhood I grew up in, which was full of Italian delis and bodegas and little businesses that could trace their roots back to the 19th century and a neighborhood where rag pickers came through on horse-drawn wagons when I was in, in, the, in the early 50s. 
rag pickers? Rag pickers, people who would just take old rags and old clothes and stuff that were not wearable anymore, and they'd take them and sell them by bulk to, uh, you know, paper makers or whoever would use rags to recycle them and reuse them. Wow, what a fun well, And um, there used to be a, a produce cart, you know, a guy would, you know, come with his donkey down the street with a produce cart on it, and that's where my grandmother would buy her, her fresh vegetables, the ones she didn't grow. Wow. She had a garden uh, out on the side yard. They owned an empty lot, or at least took over an empty lot next to uh, the building that she owned. And she had a, a beautiful garden where she grew, you know, tomatoes, and greens, and a lot of what we ate came from the garden. Yeah. So it was a really interesting kind of, I, I, I got a little sense of the end of the 19th century, you know, the old ways, when there'd be church festivals that would be like uh, right out of the Godfather part two. Yeah. You know, that kind of church festival with, with the men carrying the statues with the dollar bills pinned all over the statues cloak. Yeah. That's all, you know, kind of evidence of a bygone day there. There's still Italian festivals and they probably still do those things in some parts of the world and maybe even some parts of the country, but uh, nothing you see much in Los Angeles. Yeah. There is still an Italian fest in Omaha. It's changed over the years, but they're they're keeping it alive. And my some of the things you're talking about are very familiar to me in the sense that there was a a little Italy that my father was born in and my grandmother raised her family in and all these Italians in Omaha that were in a kind of square mile area, uh maybe uh-huh. even less, you know, six six or seven square blocks or something. And they all knew each other and my great grandfather had a had a garden as well, kind of like your grandmother's. It's very sweet kind of to hear this story uh, mm-hmm. because it reminds me of the stories I was told. I didn't know any of this stuff as Is there still uh, any sort of Italian neighborhood in Omaha? Traces of it. It exists as a name of Little right. Italy, but it most of those areas have become kind of condos and things. Although yeah. one of the there was the the restaurant that we grew up with called Caniglia's is gone and that's condos now, but across the street was one of the original bread makers of Omaha, the Italian bread makers in Omaha, which is called Orsi's Deli is still there. So they mm-hmm. make pizzas and they make bread and all the kind of wonderful Italian baked delicacies and things like that. Uh, so there, you can still go down and get that stuff. At least yeah. last time I was there, but that's one of the only things that you can see that's a rem- like a reminder of that place. Some of the houses I think are still from that age, but mm-hmm. most of that stuff is, is kind of changed over. Yeah, definitely. Was your father, was he first generation American then or? Yes, he was. My grandparents on my father's side, uh, both, uh, came from Italy just after the turn of the century. My father is the fourth, I think either the fourth or fifth of six children and is the only one that moved away from Chicago. When mm-hmm. I was about eight, we moved to Arizona. Did he fight in the war? He did. He was in uh, the Army Air Force and served in Burma as a um, military policeman. Did your grandfather fight in World War One? My grandfather, I, I did find a copy of his draft registration card. But I don't believe he uh, he was called to serve in uh, World War One. My great grandfather fought for the Americans in 
World War One, but was born in Italy. It is one yeah. of the most amazing things to me that that man's life played out, that he had to go to war against the country that he was born in. I mean, how extraordinary. Yeah. I wish yeah. I could have talked to that man. So were either of your brothers relig- deeply religious? No, I don't think so. I don't think either. My, my, my younger brother, Jerry, was... Uh, I think he probably went to church more often than either Keith or I, but he was also uh, kind of a wild man. You know, he was a, he was a bit of a playboy. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so he had maybe the most reason to be going to church. <laughs> so if I start talking about the relationship with your father, are we going to find that there's actually quite a bit there to talk about? Um, you know, I, I haven't, spend a lot of time thinking about my relationship with my father because it was somewhat distanced. Hmm. My father was a um, very hardworking, very religious, very ethical man. He had uh, very high standards and he, he loved the church and he was very involved in the church. We actually, when we lived in Arizona, we moved when a, uh, to a suburb, you know, our back gate walked right onto the church property and my parents would uh, have the nuns and priests over every Friday afternoon for cocktails. Wow. wow. So it was that kind of atmosphere. But for all that, my father didn't really know how to have a relationship with his son or any of his sons, maybe my youngest brother, best of all. But for me, I knew that my father had uh, expectations and dreams for me. But I didn't know much about him. I mean, he, I, I don't know that I ever had uh, a heartfelt conversation uh, mm. with my father until maybe near, very near the end of his life. And I'm fortunate, perhaps, that when, that, when, when he did near the end of his life and, and he was uh, suffering from uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's mm. disease, and as that was you know, beginning to debilitate his body and his ability to speak and walk, we did have some uh, actually very lovely and uh, open conversations about about life and and, uh, and you know where he felt he was headed. So I'm I'm grateful for that. You know that I, I was uh, I was able to have that. I think closure in a sense that I never felt my my relationship with my father was left hanging. You know we we were able to have our exit interview. Well, I look forward to hearing a little bit more about that as we uh, continue the story after the break. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully, Discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all.
All right, everybody, we're back with John Apicella. And John, I think it's just best if we start with you as a child, the, the child that has a back gate that opens onto the church grounds. You've got nuns and priests that are coming over for dinner. The presence of Catholicism is around you. Do you like that feeling as a young child? I didn't have strong feelings one way or the other about it. You know, I found it entertaining. And uh, so to watch them loosen up and get drunk and tell body stories was kind of eye-opening. Right, that's fun. They really look forward to coming over on Fridays and getting hammered. <laughs> <laughs> they would just have one drink and, you know, they'd put records on and and uh, they just cut loose. So it was very, it was, it was pretty funny. But, you know, my... My relationship, say, with God uh, was always, I maybe describe it as naive, that it was, it was simple. You know, I just accepted that presence. Mm -hmm. And I never, as I was growing up and I was going through changes about my feelings about the, the church, the debate was never about whether God existed or not. That just was like a, a question that's never really come up in my mind. I wouldn't even say I'm, I'm, I'm an agnostic. I'm probably a deist or a theist, hmm. whichever one of those two that kind of believes God created everything, but that he doesn't interfere. Hmm. It just seems self-evident to me that there has to be a huge creative force that is beyond my ken, because, you know, when you wake up in a national forest and look out over a beautiful valley as the sun is coming up, you're touched by something, you know, there, there's a feeling that you get that is so deep and rich, it has to be more than just DNA. At least it does to me, you know, that's, that's, my, that's my feeling. So I've never really questioned that. So when I was getting older and getting to the point where I was in high school, Brophy Prep in Phoenix, Arizona, which is a Jesuit uh, high school. Yeah, I went to a Jesuit high school also. So, you know, the Jesuits did more than anybody else to kind of help me move away from the Catholic Church. Yeah. Not by doing things that repulsed me, but by encouraging me to think yeah. and to feel and to question and to, to be curious and to be critical. And I think I was kind of going along with the program for most of the time until I was in my junior year. And... They had a thing that they do every few years. I don't know if they did it every year. Maybe it was just for the juniors. But it was a traveling priest who would come to your campus, and you'd all go with him into the chapel, and he would talk to you for a couple of hours uh, about your immortal soul hmm. and what would happen to you if you didn't toe the line. This was the guy who put the fear of God in you. Hmm. But rather than being struck by a fear of God, I was just struck by the ridiculousness of this concept, you know, that we're spending five days a week uh, in theology class learning how God is the source of all love, but they're hedging their bets by taking us into the chapel and reminding us that God, if you get on his bad side, you know, then, then you have the, uh, the torments of hell awaiting you. Mm. That I didn't believe. I, I've never believed in uh, hell as a place as described uh, in folklore. Hell seems to me to be more the Jesuit idea of hell, uh, 
the lack of knowledge of God, the lack of uh, a, a lack of love, uh, selfishness, mm. uh, isolation, the things that draw you away from your fellow man and uh, and cause you to fester in your uh, in your own worst instincts. So it was around that time, I think, that I started to realize once I left my parents, their, their home, that uh, I would not be continuing uh, as a Catholic. Do you have to come clean to your father and mother? I mean, do you have to tell them outright or? Yeah, I'm afraid I was not that brave. Mm. You know, I just kept it to myself for the most part. And I went through the motions. I didn't want to uh, disappoint them. I knew it would disappoint them. And I didn't want to do that. And maybe I was also dreading the idea that when I knew once I'd tell them, they'd try to talk me out of it. And I just didn't want to spend the last, you know, my last year or two living uh, with my parents uh, arguing about religion. What actually uh, brought it to a head was when I was 19, I, in my stupidity and naivete, I got a girl pregnant. Oh, wow. And we decided to get married. It was a girl I loved, and, you know, I was 19 is, like, really too young for that sort of thing, but <clears throat> that's what we decided to do. Uh, we didn't discuss abortion. This is 1967, wow. 67 or so, and so abortion was still uh, a fairly hot topic, not that it isn't at the moment. But um, both of us kind of felt like, well, no, we didn't, we didn't want to do that. We'll, let, let's get married and have this kid. And when I went to my parents and let them know, I said, then we're going to get married in uh, my girlfriend's church. She was Lutheran. And uh, they said, well, what are you, we're going to have a second marriage? Or what, are you, what is your plan? I said, no, I'm, I'm not getting married in the Catholic church. I'm, I'm not a Catholic anymore. And that was kind of more, I think, a harder thing for them to deal with than the fact that, uh, uh, that I was going to be a father. Right. <laughs> 19 had a... Right, a child out of wedlock. They maybe were able to cope with that a little better because their attention was really on my uh, leaving the church. That that was sort of the real slap in the face to them. Wow! And so, where do you go? Where what what happens? What's the next stage of your life? Well, the next stage of my life, finishing uh, university, going to Arizona State. You're married and raising a child. I'm married. I'm also working as a cab driver mostly night shifts. Wow. Some driving cab at night and going to school in the day. My wife is a legal secretary, so she's working all day. And, you know, fortunately we have some family and we find a good daycare center. And so we're able to sustain it. Is it a son or a daughter? It's a daughter. And are your parents involved in, uh, have they forgiven you for the, enough to care for the grandchild or? Yeah. I think they both got to the point where they realized I was going to do what I was going to do. And I think they also appreciated that I was doing, I was doing, quote, the right thing, unquote. Mm-hmm. You know, that I was, uh, I was taking responsibility. Wow. From this point of view, I can say I was taking responsibility. At the time, I didn't feel very responsible. Right. And I, I have to say, I probably was not a very good husband uh, or father. I was, uh, you know, still young and dealing with my own stuff and trying to become a, an adult myself. So uh, I, 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 I would love a gimme, you know, I'd love a do-over to be a, a little better at, 
at being uh, a, a uh, an underage father and a, uh, a husband who didn't have a lot of maturity. Hmm. So what were you studying at Arizona State? I was in the theater, you know, act, taking acting and directing classes, taking design and uh, theater business classes and, you know, the, everything they offered. And your wife, I mean, it's pretty cool that she's supportive of this, right? You have a young child. You're still going to follow your dream of being an actor. Well, that's, it's interesting. It's not quite my dream yet. I'm learning about the theater and I'm learning about acting, but I'm not having any fantasies about, you know, what it is. I've actually never had many fantasies about it. It's the actual doing of it and the process of it, the society of it. Uh, the practice of theater is what fascinates me and not the uh, result of um, of being in a public job. You know, I've never spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, fantasizing about uh, getting awards or recognition or being famous or any of that. That, that just wasn't part of my motivation. Um, it was really more the human connections that I felt in uh, in the theater and the indescribable joy I would have when I was on stage and, and creating something in front of a live audience. Mm. So how long does this marriage last? Do you have any other children? I do. Oh, we do. Because I, I certainly didn't do it myself. <laughs> uh, it, it was about uh, seven and a half, eight years later, we had a son as well. Wow. So it's a long marriage. We were together nine years. Does it end with a kind of mutual understanding? Does it end in fire? <laughs> Is it a terrible ending? Um, it was uh, terrible in the sense that uh, I was uh, I was a terrible husband. Mm. You know, I, I still, even in well into my 20s, and actually for a while after that, I just did not have the emotional maturity to... Uh, to be re uh, responsible, to be trustworthy, to be, to be good, to be, you know, a, a decent and, and uh, honorable person. I, I wasn't on uh, many of those things. And, uh, I think I, uh, as the betraying party basically in the, in the marriage, I felt, uh, very sad and, uh, guilty as years went on about how I treated uh, my wife at the time. She was uh, very honorable and uh, hardworking and straightforward and honest person. And it took me, I was at least 10 years behind her before I started to realize the importance of, of, of living uh, honestly with yourself and with other people. So it's, um, that's where that's at. Well, it's powerful, man. That's powerful. I mean, I can't imagine you talk about that very often. I don't believe I've talked about it uh, in, I can't recall the last time I sort of talked about it, at least in, in this way, and talked about these specifics. But it's not like it's not a part of my life. I don't obsess about it, but I, I remember how it felt and what some of the possible effects of, of what I did were in, in my wife's life and my children's lives. Um, and it's one of the things that uh, keeps me motivated, I think, to live every minute of my life as uh, honestly and ethically as I can. Did, were you able to maintain a relationship with your kids and all yeah. that? Oh, that... yeah. Yeah, very much. I have okay, good, good relationships with my kids. My daughter is 
had a difficult uh, road to hoe in uh, a lot of ways, but we love each other, and I have hopes that she's working her challenges out. She and her husband live up in the, the Antelope Valley. My son and uh, daughter-in-law are uh, both professionals. He's an architect, and she's a doctor, and they live in San Diego. And they're wonderful folks, and we love them very much. And very frustrating not to be able to visit uh, yeah, yeah. either Antelope Valley or San Diego at the present time. But I have good relationships with them. I had a good re- and and continue to have a a good positive relationship with my ex-wife. We had a very uh, what do they call it amicable yeah, divorce. Yeah, uh, and she was ready. She was ready as well to move on. I think she, you know, she'd given me. 10 years of her life. And I think that's all I deserved at that point. And that was way more than I deserved at that point. Uh, so, uh, you know, she was, I think she was content to move on. And there were a couple of years where we were figuring out how to do the co-parenting. And then she remarried a few years after we divorced E3. So she had stability in her life that was, uh, I think, very beneficial for the kids as I was kind of starting my my attempts to uh, have an actor career here in Los Angeles. Mm. So fortunately, there, there, was, uh, there was some stability there. Wow, that's an amazing piece of your story, John. I didn't know that. I know this is going to seem a little insane, but we have to take our last break. And there's a lot of life left to put together in one final segment, but we're going to figure it out when we come back from this all right all right okay all right we'll see you on here in a minute god and other delicacies has a weekly newsletter if you'd like to subscribe email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and i'll put you on the list Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners, and it means a lot to me, because I read them, and it's nice to read nice things. Okay, everyone, we're back with John in our last segment, and as we were trying to understand how to synthesize so much life into a a relatively small segment, it became clear that we needed to articulate that at this stage in your life, as you are beginning to understand your place in the theater scene, your love for the theater scene in LA, and this is just starting to dawn on you, that you feel kind of wide open, both Mm -hmm. spiritually, in your family structure, and that this is the beginning actually of what would become the rest of your life. How does it start and where does it go? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess for the things that I, things that I experienced or learned, let's say near the end of my, my college experience, uh, I, I was particularly unmoored and didn't know really where I was going or what I wanted to do with my life. And I wasn't quite sure what life was all about anyway. And I did have a few experiences with uh, LSD Mm. that made a huge impression on me. It kind of gave me an actual experience of something that I had been reading about or that studying a bit in Buddhism or in transcendentalism and kind of 
you know, the message of the Beatles, you know, that we're all one and that life goes on within you and without you and uh, all you need is love and mm. all that gooey stuff. My experiences in uh, the psychedelics really gave me a, a personal experience of that interconnectedness. And I got it. I got that. Mm. I, that sort of became a part of me. And uh, I was able to have that insight and that kind of was it for me with LSD. I didn't need to, I didn't need to take anymore. <laughs> it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something I needed to uh, continue because I had experienced something that I'd never felt in my life before. And it was a very real and tangible feeling. And I had no reason to think it was anything but real. It transformed the way I looked at life. And it, it helped me understand a little better that Everything I do has repercussions and vibrations and influences that are far beyond what my motivation, my impulse might have been. Mm. So it made me more mindful of how I affected the world and how I was affecting other people. And I was also reading a lot of Thomas Merton yeah, right on. back then, as well as Krishnamurti. And it became more and more real to me that the center of everything is love. That's a truth. It's an eternal. And I saw how it made a difference it would make when I would be in a situation where I was dealing with an obstruction or with even with violence or something that I was often able to move through it and have a successful conclusion just by remembering that just by remembering that if I keep my motivation as love as, as and, and recognize that my opposition was the same as me, mm. you know, looking back at me, that uh, we weren't separate things, that it wasn't a battle that I had to win, but a process that I need to go through to, to find a solution. What's it like for you to be having what should have been your childhood right after you've already had two children? What is that like for you? Because mm -hmm. I did LSD too, and I did mushrooms too, but I did it, you know, I got to grow up in a time period where that was a bit more prevalent. And I mean, not to say that other people in my generation didn't also fall into some of the patterns that you did, but it was much more common for my generation to be able to have those experiences if they wanted them at the, what is really the appropriate time to be having them. Mm -hmm. And it must be so strange for you to be doing LSD and then coming out of it being like, oh, it's my weekend with the kids, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, of course, when that, when that was happening, my, uh, my daughter was, uh, was still very, very young. Mm. But yeah, I, that was certainly part of the, um, the process that I was going through. That You know, I, I think sometimes you, you can have a, spiritual insight or awakening. And it doesn't necessarily end in you being a better person. Mm. Sometimes that insight, all you can do is that insight is something that can be a guidepost or uh, a boy in the sea that you can reference that can give you some inspiration or some uh, encouragement and strength to try to be uh, make the practical changes in your uh, behavior to be a more effective and to be a, a, 
um, a more positive and uh, contributing person instead of a uh, a user and uh, abuser. So having gained a certain amount of insight through the LSD or peyote experiences, it, it just gave me a starting point. It gave me a sense of like how to how to move through the world without feeling completely unanchored. Hmm. So then when does it start anchoring for you? When does the spiritual insight that you had, however many years before, begin to feel like they find foundation? You know, I think they start to become real in my life around the late 80s. I began to, I, I got introduced to the work of uh, Václav Havel, mm. the great playwright and, of course, first president of uh, the Czech Republic after uh, the fall of communism in Czechoslovakia. And reading his uh, essays about life in a totalitarian society and how to be an ethical person and live honestly in that world, living in truth was the phrase that he would use. And that's living in truth in every little thing and finding the truth in every moment and every experience and honoring it and sticking with it. That impressed me very deeply. He's part of a small group of dissidents with a larger group of sympathizers living in a totalitarian society that sees them as enemies of the state and that uh, spends their time uh, prosecuting uh, and uh, imprisoning them, these people. And Havel had his share of uh, prosecutions and uh, he spent a certain time in prison and he was also under house arrest for quite a while. Mm. And that example, and maybe it was the fact that he was a playwright helped a lot too because I felt really... Uh, allied to him because of his work, the plays that I was becoming familiar with. And I felt like he was a, a mate. He was a, he felt like a brother. And when he was going through these experiences, I was amazed at how he was able to maintain uh, a sense of love and a sense of honesty and truth in his dealings with a dishonest and undermining political structure. His philosophy really, really touched me. It really had a strong uh, effect on me. It influenced me a lot. And I recognized also how much American society in its own way reflected the mature totalitarian society of Czechoslovakia in, uh, in the 70s and 80s, that people... They don't need to be oppressed. In a mature totalitarian society, the people oppress themselves. Mm. They know what they can get away with and what they can't get away with. And although our uh, America's freedoms are, you know, the things that we, we crow about the most, that we brag about the most, and that we use to tell the rest of the world that we're the greatest country in the world, that underneath that and behind that uh, is falsehood. There's a lot of falsehood. And thank God we're seeing it being exposed now so vividly in, our, in every day, in, in, 
in every news cycle. And I think a lot of, uh, of white Americans are finally beginning to understand the legacy of the Civil War, this cold Civil War that's been going on for 150 years. Mm. And that, that it's a real thing that is invisible to us. We don't see that darkness and, and that horror because we're dazzled by our by the red, white, and blue waving in the wind and the jets flying overhead and in the, the glories of, of how great we are. I mean, there's greatness in the United States, certainly. I love this country and what it stands for, what it purports to, uh, to be for its own people and, and uh, for the rest of the world. But um, if, until we're really honest about the way things really work, about who really has the power and who's got their hands on the controls of society. Until we can be honest about that and honest about our own complicity in that, until we can get beyond, beyond making it a, a win-lose situation in competition with another team, until we can begin to uh, be honest with ourselves, the people in our lives, with the people in our work, with uh, the people in the rest of the world, then we're going to continue to be miserable. And that's our real challenge now, I think, is to be, um, is to live in truth, to live in honesty, to not pass on rumors and, and, uh, and uh, stories that uh, make our opposition look bad without caring whether they're true or not. Mm. Is this a fire then that's lit under you? Does this, this is similar to the John that I am starting to know now. You know what I mean? This is this John I'm starting to know a little bit. This is the John that gets me to, you know, I doesn't have to twist my arm. I'm thrilled to do it, but like some staged readings of Brecht. And right. this is the John that's interested in theater of mindfulness, of, of revolt, of... Mm -hmm theater of social justice. Not that you haven't mm -hmm. done a fluff piece now and again, but, oh, um, believe me, <laughs> <laughs> but is this, yes, it, it certainly, it certainly begins to connect to my existence as a, a theater person, because I begin to understand what m m I can do with mm. my life, my area of interest and expertise, you know, the thing that I'm good at, what can I do? You know, um, one thing I can do is to produce and, and encourage the production of the plays that tell the story I want to tell, that tell any story of, of inclusion and the sense that you don't know who you're playing to in the audience. You don't know who's seeing this play for the first time and what thoughts and feelings you are sparking in them. But even in, in the theater, which at its best only reaches, you know, a few hundred people a night in a play, you know, you might, a really big theater, you might have a couple thousand, but usually good-sized commercial house, you'll have two or three hundred, four, under 500 people. And in these little intimate houses we play to in Los Angeles, you'll have uh, 99 seats, and uh, there might only be 12 people in them on any given night. Yeah. But you don't know who those 12 people are, and you don't know what the uh, influences that you're going to have. 
So uh, I realized that, you know, I, I'm not going to reach the people that, that Hobble reached. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't have that power. I don't have the uh, ability to uh, make a huge splash. But I also realized that a little splash can be just as effective. That uh, we don't we don't always know, but our well, we never know really what all the repercussions of our actions are. So you know, I just felt that the more I focus myself on that and try to uh, tell those stories and encourage that kind of thought that leads people to appreciate the uh, the importance of uh, honesty in, in in their own lives. That was that was what I could do. John, I have that's beautiful. This is great. There are two things I really want to hear before the end of this show. One is I want to know when you meet Joni, who is your current wife, and I also want to know something about those conversations you were having with your dad that you talked about in the first segment at the end of his mm -hmm. life. Well, um, all right. I, I think you might find it interesting to know that my dad had a theatrical background. Oh, wow. I do way. find that interesting. <laughs> he, uh, when he was in the Army in Burma, Morris Evans uh, had a USO troop that were doing Shakespeare. They just, you know, show up at the camp or in town and, you know, they, they do Shakespeare for the troops. Cool. And my dad was assigned to uh, work with them, I guess, as a military policeman, as, you know, kind of security squad, to work with them. And at some point, they needed somebody to step in on some little roles. And he was happy to do it. It wasn't his thing. He didn't know it was going, but he did it. And Morris Evans liked him and said, would you like to continue with this and you know we i can get you reassigned and and you can just uh, stay with the troops you can still do security but you know you can fill in these little roles and and my dad said no he decided no he didn't want to wow. he, he was happy where he was and he didn't really want to follow that but it kind of planted a little bug in his ear you know so when i was in high school and started to uh, get into the theater program in Maryvale High in Phoenix and got my first job, got cast in my first role playing Captain Corcoran in Gilbert and Sullivan's uh, HMS Pinafore. Hmm. I realized how happy he was that I was doing that. Hmm. He was really delighted by it and proud of me. I'm sure a lot of actors have this experience at some point, you know, as your parents get older or they... They pass on and, uh, you know, you, you get to see uh, all the stuff that's in the closet as you're cleaning out. And I found these scrapbooks full of me. Wow. Just page after page of, you know, every little play I did in Phoenix and every little story in the Arizona Republic and all my reviews. And, you know, they made a study of it with my mom and dad. And um, that's kind of what we did. Uh, talk about at the end. I had done uh, a part in a Jack Lemon movie called Dad, and uh, they'd sent me a bunch of uh, merch. 
Oh, cool. Afterwards, you know, coffee cups and hats and stuff. And I gave him this, you know, this this uh, baseball cap, which said "Dad" on it. And that became. He would wear that one only when his Cubs cap was getting washed, <laughs> but it was his backup hat. <laughs> and he was, and and, and, he, and he said he didn't wear. He, oh, one other thing he didn't wear it too much is he'd have to explain it all the time, and he felt like he was bragging too much about me. (laughs) He was really happy that I had found my way into the theater, that it meant so much to me, and that I was having such good experiences, and, you know, he was was very supportive. He and my mom both were very supportive about that, uh, especially in the last few years of, of, uh, of their lives. And, um, I guess I have to. I guess I have to admit that I, I, I was much more critical of my parents than they probably deserved to be. You know, they were very supportive people in so many ways. They let me grow up in an atmosphere where my mind was able to develop in the way that it did. That my interests and and talents were encouraged. And uh, it wasn't really until I was well into my. 40s, I think, that I, that I really appreciated that. And it really changed my relationship with my parents. And I was much more generous to them than I had been mm. uh, prior to that. And that's, you know, if there's anything I can advise younger people about, it's, uh, you know, there's some monster parents out there, certainly, but most of our parents are just us in a previous generation. And they're just trying to figure it out as much as we are. And they'll make mistakes and sometimes really awful blunders. But uh, they're usually making them out of love, out of uh, an attempt to, to do something that they think is good for us. And um, having that, uh, a more charitable view of our parents is, is something that you know, we should encourage in ourselves. And it not only is nicer to our parents, but it's better for us. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy that uh, I also did some things in my teen years that mortified and, and horrified my parents. Uh, they have a lot more reason probably to be disappointed and angry at me than I with them. Mm. But in the final uh, decade or so of their lives, I, I, I was uh, fortunate enough to have the insight to appreciate the positives of, uh, of our relationship. And you got to connect at the end of his life. Yeah, you got to connect definitely. on this level and which is a real joy for some of my friends that have lost parents very young. Some yeah. of my friends lost parents while I was in college and it's very tragic because you don't have that opportunity. It really is. As you get old, you know, you come to this understanding as you get older and, um, I'm thankful that I've had the opportunity to connect with my parents as an older person and not the headstrong, I mean, I'm still headstrong, but the headstrong young kid that I was that maybe was less charitable as you talk about. And so I'm glad you got to have that. And so that's part of, so that's a big part of the story of that end. I think so. Yeah. And they were very happy that I had found a a wonderful woman and that I was having a, a, a good, strong uh, positive experience being married to her. 
or we weren't married yet. We didn't get married. Joni and I didn't get married until uh, my parents were both gone and her parents were both gone. Uh, so it's too bad. They would have enjoyed it, but we, we dated for about 23 years. Oh, <laughs> wow. I didn't realize you and Joni. Yeah, we were, for fi- 20- we were fixed up by some friends who have since bitterly divorced. Oh, uh, but, um, we were fixed up and they encouraged us to get together and we, you know, we kind of clicked right from the beginning yeah. and, uh, we've been married for about 10 years. We just had our 10th anniversary. So, you know, it's like 33 years we've been together. Yeah, tenth anniversary of a thirty-three year relationship. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and um, I guess the I, I'm fortunate that it took me so long, you know, that it took me into my well into my forties before I kind of realized that I didn't want to continue living a, a series of French novels. You know, that I I didn't <laughs> want I, I didn't want to be juggling girlfriends or uh, involved in heartbreak and misery, and I, 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 you know, didn't didn't want to hurt anyone anymore. I didn't want to be hurt, and I kind of retired for a while. Like in when I was about forty five or so, I think I just said, "Okay, I'm through with dating. I'm through with relationships." And of course, a couple months later, I met Joni. Yes, of course. <laughs> the way the universe likes to you know, get in our face and do that sort of thing, and. Uh, I have been a, a, not a, not a perfect, certainly not a perfect and, and maybe not even a great, but a not bad husband overall. <laughs> and I have had the, um, the joy of being faithful to her for 33 years you know, mm. of not having anything I need to hide or pretend about, you know, that, um, uh, that's a, that's a really good feeling. Yeah, and uh, and I'm fortunate, you know, that uh, she's a she's a, a really smart and, and uh, brilliant woman. I think she's a better person than I am. I think she's uh, more generous and, and uh, more charitable and, and uh, harder working. I'm a, I'm I'm kind of a lazy bum to tell the truth, <laughs> but but she uh, she's a good influence on me, and we're both so grateful to have a found each other and to have a life together. And thanks to the frugality and hard work of her parents and my parents, we have a little house in the Valley and we you know, have a, uh, a comfortable and, and healthy and lovely place to live while we're living through this crazy pandemic era. Mm. And um, I don't feel like I've figured anything really out, Nick. You know, I don't feel like I've got, I've gotten to a plateau or a place where I can, breathe easily and say, uh, okay, this is what life's all about. But I feel good about life. I feel good about, about the universe. You know, I think the universe is a good place. I think goodness is the default. Mm. Uh, I, I think, uh, love is surrounds us and uh, envelops us and supports us and not denying the, horrors of the world and the darknesses and the, the evil that we sometimes see, uh, that we often see exhibited, that most people are, are charitable and uh, loving and open and want to live charitable, loving, open lives, you know, in, in, in emergencies. 
Yeah. You know, it's, it amazes what, me what happens in an earthquake or uh, a sudden fire or, you know, people risk their lives for strangers. They risk their lives for strangers. They, they run into a, a burning building, not, not, not even firemen. Firemen are amazing. Yeah. Just, you know, they're, they're the most, one of the most amazing professions in the world. It, uh, these people that, you know, run into burning buildings. But civilians, people that never thought of it twice, their first impulse is to risk their own lives for somebody else. And I think that's, that's something that we, we see a lot in the world. And it doesn't get mentioned. It doesn't get on the news, of course, because it's not newsy. But that's, I believe, the default of the world. I mean, even in, our, in the present dark days that this country is going through, that even in this world, uh, on most interactions between people are good. And uh, there's a lot more uh, generosity and kindness than selfishness and, uh, and meanness. John, that was a lovely way to send it off into the sunset here. And it's quite literally sunset. Uh, it is. We've spoken. We've spoken through the end of the day. And we're sharing the same day here. I mean, we, you and I live about a mile away from each other, and we're talking uh-huh. on the phone. <laughs> Can't I even know. get together and sit in I the know. same room. I've got a chair. I'm staring at that's empty. God, I know. I uh, this is this period of our our lives has got to be the craziest, oh, craziest imaginable. I could never imagine this that I'd spend my uh, my most of my seventy first year on Earth. Hold up in, yeah. hold up in a house in North Hollywood, sneaking out once every week or two to get a trunk full of groceries at Ralph's, yeah. and and otherwise uh, trying to trying to figure out what to do on a day to day basis. I, I have to say, um, I'm uh, uh, I'm I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I, I think about that a lot, and I'm not. I'm not coming up with a lot of good things, but uh, I'm going to continue to think about it. And I'm going to continue to try things. And I think, you know, I, and I have faith that at some point I will, uh, I will find some way uh, to, to make a contribution to the world. And I guess one of the things that soothes me is that I know hundreds of millions of people are feeling the same thing and going through the same thing. Yeah. Well, bask in the glow of a beautiful episode, John Apicella. Well, thank you for uh, asking me, Nick. I'm, I'm very honored that uh, you found me worth talking to. Oh, and, John. Uh, and thank you for uh, you know the questions you're asking and the, the, the kind of focus of your show has really caused me to, uh, to kind of recollect and to kind of take stock. And it's a great opportunity. And... Uh, I think, I think I've grown up a little just <laughs> through this process. I think I've, I understand a little bit more about myself. Well, I'm glad that, that I could help you, you know, grow up from 71 to 71 and a half today. <laughs> I'm 71 and a half years old. Happy to say it. Actually, I'm more than that. My birthday is in November. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I get to wish you a happy birthday soon. Well, all right. Well, thank you, John. It was beautiful. And thank you all for listening.
I'm not a really deeply self-reflective person. I I'm, I'm tend to be pretty outward looking and, you know, I don't feel uh, motivated or uh, obligated to understand myself. Oh, Maybe that's wrong. Maybe I should be trying harder to understand myself. But it seems to me there's so much more in the world to understand that's more interesting. <laughs> I really like looking out. 